Welcome to ClassicSinai.com. The class you're about to hear is one of 26 free all-star Jewish classics available to help you live a more vibrant, meaningful, and fulfilling life. In throughout most of Jewish history, when the Jews were confronted with a great challenge, they turned to the the Torah to help them resolve the challenge. In recent years, that's not as popular. In recent years, the way that people determine how to run their lives is, you know, they get a good piece of advice from a friend, or they hear something on the radio, on a talk show. Every now and then they'll read a good self-help book, uh, The Seven Habits of Sick People, you know, whatever the, the, the thing is, that will be their guide. But in the old days, we used to turn towards the Torah. One of the, the penultimate challenges of our door is creating healthy, thriving relationships. And ironically, we turn to all sorts of crazy sources for advice about how to create these relationships. And it's an area where we very rarely consult the Torah. So what I want to do is I want to try to take a look at the Torah's advice for creating healthy relationships. We obviously can't do more than a sliver in an hour. But uh, we'll, we'll get a picture of one small piece of advice the Torah gives about creating healthy relationships. The problem with looking things up in the Torah is the Torah is not well indexed. So it's not clear exactly where to look for these things. But I found one scene that I think is, is relevant. And that is the scene in which God comes to the Jews to give them the Torah. And when the scene opens, the Jews are crowded around Mount Sinai. And there's lightning, and there's thunder, and the mountain's shaking. People are in awe. They're standing, they're staring up at the sky. God rips open the seven heavens. He descends through the seven heavens, comes down, reveals himself in front of the entire Jewish people. And there's this voice that reverberates. I am the Lord, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And every single Jew on the spot drops dead. <laughs> so send, uh, God sends angels, and he, the angels revive them. People get up again. He says, you should have no other gods before me. Again, everyone drops dead again. Sends angels, revives them. Jews wake up and say, Moshe, maybe you'd like to get the rest of the Torah from Hashem. <laughs> yeah. So Moshe says, fine. And Hashem calls to Moshe, Moshe, come up to the mountain. And Moshe goes up on Harsinai to get the Torah. Moshe is up there for 40 days. And towards the end of the 40 days, Hashem says, hey, you know what? There's trouble in Tinseltown. I think you better go back down there. And Moshe Benu starts heading down the mountain. As he comes around the corner, he looks down from the mountain on the encampment. And he sees below in the encampment all these people dancing around. And he realizes exactly what's going on. And Moshe takes the Ten Commandments and he smashes them against a rock. And for the first time ever in history, right, the words are uttered, Yishkayach. Hashem says to Moshe, good job. Strange thing. Those, those tablets certainly did not belong to Moshe. Yeah, they either belonged to God or the Jewish people. But for some reason, it was a good idea for Moshe to smash them. Moshe then descends into the camp, and as soon as he gets into the camp, he realizes what's going on. And he pushes his way through the crowd, and he gets right into the center, and he sees in the middle of the crowd this golden calf, and he picks that thing up, and he puts it under his arm and grinds it down into powder. He takes the powder and dumps it into a bunch of Kool-Aid pitchers, pours everybody a cup of Kool-Aid, and says, okay, everyone come and drink. A bunch of people come over to drink, and some of the people who drink, their stomachs explode on the spot. The other people survive, and as soon as this procedure is over, Moshe turns towards the survivors and says, whoever's with God, come with me, and he pulls out a sword, and Moshe Rabbeinu is joined by the tribe of Levi, and the tribe of Levi and Moshe Rabbeinu go off, and they make a civil war, and they kill 3,000 Jews. Then Moshe puts away his sword. By this point, we assume anyone who was guilty of the golden calf, they're dead. And then God says, stand back! I'm going to wipe out the rest of the Jewish people. And Moshe says, oh no, God, please don't do it. And Hashem says, okay, but on one condition. 
this time. No thunder. No lightning. No shaking mountain. You come up to the mountain alone, quietly. I'll give you another set of tablets. Says Rashi on the spot. There's nothing as beautiful as Sneas. Moshe goes up on the mountain, quietly, no thunder, no shaking mountain, gets the tablets, brings them down, and the Jews live happily ever after. Or almost. Okay. Fine. That's the end of the story. Now, let's run through the story one more time and note all the things which make no sense, or at least some of the things which make no sense. Start off with the beginning of the story. Between 18 and 40 days after the Jews heard God say the words, you should have no other gods before me, already the Jews are building a golden calf. This is a bomb question that everybody asks. How could they do it? God says, I have no other gods before me. And a few weeks later, Major, what they call Avodazara, idol building, happening right here on the spot. So the first question, the bomb question, is how could they do it? Second question. Moshe comes down off the mountain, runs into the crowd, picks up the golden calf, and grinds it down to powder, dissolves into water. This is reminiscent of what procedure? The Sota procedure. Right, the famous sort of procedure, you have a, a woman who's a suspected adulteress, so you take God's name, you write on a piece of parchment, you dissolve the parchment in water, give it to the suspected adulteress to drink, she drinks the water, if she's guilty, her stomach explodes, if she's not guilty, then her stomach doesn't explode, and the man knows that she's safe, and he can take her back to the house, he doesn't have to worry about her, that she never committed adultery. So, what's strange here is, that it seems from the superficial reading of the material, that the problem here was idol worship, not sexual things. So why are we testing the Jewish people here using what looks like a SOTA procedure, which looks like a test for adultery? Where was the adultery? All we see is the idol worship. Next question. If those people who were guilty of being involved in worshiping the golden calf were killed through this quasi-SOTA procedure, this, 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 this dissolving of the, the gold in the water and then the stomach's exploding, who are the people that Moshe then took out the sword and said, I'm going to kill them? And he goes with the tribe of Laban and kills 3,000 more people. Who are those people? And related to that, why after killing all of those people does God then say, now step back, I'm going to kill the whole rest of the Jewish people? And then finally, why is the God says that he won't kill the Jews if Moshe will come back up again and get the Torah one more time, but this time with no thunder, no lightning, no shaking mountain. There's nothing as beautiful as Sneas. I always thought that Sneas meant covering your elbows. So if Sneas means covering your elbows, where were the uncovered elbows here? Like they left that out of the Torah also. Where were the, where were the people flashing a little knee? Yeah, that's all missing from the story. Fine. One more run through the story. Last time. This time what we're going to do is we're going to fill in some of the oral tradition and see if it resolves any of the questions that we have. God descends on Mount Sinai. And when he descends, he descends with his Merkava, with his chariot. And the Medrash says the Jews were staring at the Merkava. The Medrash there says that when God came to give the Torah, Moshe was elated. And God said to Moshe, you're thrilled because you only have one vision. But I got him furious for I have two visions. You, Moshe, see the Jews are coming to get the Torah so you're so excited. I, God, see they're staring at my chariot. And that's why I'm so angry. What was God angry about? They were staring at the chair. Why were they staring at the chair? What were they looking at? So a little bit of background.
those Orthodox Jews, they don't believe that when you drop a pen, the gravity is what forces the pen down towards the earth. Rather, they believe that when you let go of the pen, God says, down, 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 and forces the pen, recreating the pen in a new position every single microsecond until it finally hits earth. That is, there is no such thing as nature. Nature is an illusion. It's all really God. And nature is a facade that he hides behind. I'll offer you a metaphor, and you cannot imagine at this moment how accurate this metaphor is. But nature you could liken to God's clothing. You cannot see me. I'm entirely hidden behind this cloth that I wear. In the exact same way that I hide behind this cloth, HaKadosh Baruch Hu hides behind nature. Kavayachal, nature is God's clothing. Now what happens if you penetrate one layer behind the clothing? If you go one layer behind my clothing, you get to my skin. That's not me. I am not skin. I'm a spiritual creature. I'm an neshama. But you can't see my neshama. My neshama is hidden. My soul is hidden behind my clothing, behind my skin. With the Kodesh Baruch Hu, if you penetrate one layer behind his clothing, if you go one layer behind nature, what do you get to? So we believe that if you would just peel back this facade of nature, what you'll see is the plumbing behind the walls. That is, behind nature, there are these spiritual energy pathways through which God pumps all sorts of beams of energy which keep the universe functioning properly. At this moment, what is maintaining this pen in my hands is a beam of penness which God is constantly broadcasting into the place where my fingers meet. And if, for a moment, that flow of cosmic penness was cut off, the pen would disappear. At this moment, the reason there is a nose on my face is because there is noseness being broadcast on the front of my face. Yes? If for a minute that flow was cut off, I would have no nose. Gone. Yes? That's the way the universe functions. That's what we believe. All of these flows of energy are generated by this massive cosmic tuning center called the Merkava, the chariot. If you peel back this facade of nature and you look right behind the surface, you look at the plumbing behind the walls, what you'll find is all of nature is being sustained by the Merkava and the energy that is coming down from the Merkava. If nature is like God's clothing, the Merkava is like God's skin. Now if you penetrate beneath my skin, you go past the body. Then you actually get to my essence. Then you get to my soul. And if you'll go one level behind the Merkava, then you get to the boss who's running the universe. A Kodesh Baruch who's sitting up there tuning the Merkava and making everything happen. So you have this three-part metaphor. There is God's clothing nature, God's skin the Merkava, and then finally, Kavayochel, and then finally, God's essence itself, which would be Kavayochel, like a human soul. Now we can begin to understand, what were the Jews staring at? Well, when God came down, he split the seven heavens and he revealed his Merkava. He revealed this skin Kavayochel. And they were staring. Why were they staring? What's so attractive about the Merkava? You have to be very mature to understand the point I'm about to say, but I think everybody here will appreciate. It. 
when I'm sitting at the table across from her and I stare into my wife's eyes. So there's a very, very deep connection that takes place. And then we start to speak. Speech is the essence of the connection. And we start to open up to each other. I'm staring into her eyes and we're opening up. The feeling that a normal human being has at the beginning is it's a thrill. And the more that I open up and the more that I let her in, the more thrilling it becomes. Until it's like a very, very, very exciting roller coaster that becomes a point where we're moving so fast and it is so steep, it gets scary. And at that point, any normal human being becomes frightened. It's, wait, 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 wait. Wait, don't go, don't go closer for a second. Just please, no, 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 no more, no more. Hold on, hold on, hold on. And the feeling that I have is I don't want you to penetrate any deeper because I'm afraid if you come any farther into my world, I'll die, I'll lose everything. Please just hold it right there. At this point, it gets very scary. At that point, if I don't want her to penetrate any further into my world, what will I do? Well, I don't want to walk away from the relationship. I love her. That's why I'm talking to her. So what do I do? I can't keep talking like this. If I open up anymore, it's too frightening. So what I do is I I look down. But I I don't want to blow the intimacy. I've created a tremendous closeness here. So I, um, uh, we hold hands. Look, look, we're still close. See, we're holding hands. Look, I've got my arm around her. See, we're walking down the street. I have my arm over her. See, we're very close still. Yeah. And of course, the whole conversation just stopped. Here, let's go see a movie. We'll sit in the movie. We'll sit, we'll hold hands in the movie. It's dark, right? It's nice. Yes, I watch the movie. And I still feel close in some way, but it's all an illusion because what I just did was I just shut down the intimacy. We're no longer connecting. That all stopped. I became frightened. And when a person becomes frightened, the easiest way to shut down the intimacy and maintain in their own mind an illusion as if they're still connecting is by grabbing a hold of externals. See, we're holding hands. So we're still intimate, you see. But the reality is that I backed out. Instead of this deep internal connection, what's now going on is I'm holding on to externals. Prophecy from the Jewish perspective, is not that God speaks, bless you, that God speaks to somebody. That's a Christian concept. Prophecy is far more than that. Prophecy is God's essence flows into a human being. It suffuses the human being. God penetrates every aspect of the person. It is the closest, most ecstatic experience a human being can ever have. And it's frightening. It was so frightening, it blew the souls out of the Jews twice. And when they got up the third time, they were scared to death. God, you know, just could you talk to Moshe instead? It was too much. They were terrified. And so, when Moshe went up to get the Torah, the Jews started thinking, you know, we don't want to run away. We love him. We want to be close. That's why we're sitting here with him. It was a little frightening. Maybe we could just turn off the lights. Maybe we could just hold hands. Let's connect externally. And so they were staring at the skin, Kaviyoch, at the chariot. They were staring at this external. Why was God angry? The whole goal of the universe is closeness, is connection. Hashem Echad. God is one. That doesn't mean there's one and not two. When we say God is one, that means He's a unity, that there's nothing outside of Him. And the whole purpose of the universe is Gilui Yichud, to reveal God's oneness, that everything should connect. The whole goal is connection, relationship. That's the goal. And the Jews, out of fear of intimacy, backed out. And they were saying, you know, look, we could just hold hands. We just hold on to externals. Or relate to the chariot. What would that look like? Well, instead of speaking directly to God, if you use this segula, just say this divine name, right? 
in the middle of your Yom Kippur davening, and you can have whatever you want without davening to God. It's very effective. Yes? Right? If you use this trick so you can get your shidduch, you never have to worry about asking God for it. Yes? This will give you parnasa. This will give you a great living, right? Six-digit salary with, you know, eight Hebrew letters. There you have it. And if you pull all the right cosmic strings, yes, you can get anything you want without actually having to relate to God. Realize when you're pulling all these cosmic strings, what are you manipulating? The chariot. And that's what the Jews said. You know, we can always relate just to the chariot. On the chariot, there are four creatures. There's an image there of a man. There's an image of a lion. There's an image of an eagle. And there's an image of a calf. And so the Jews built for them a little golden calf. Something they could hold hands with. Something they could relate to. They could get everything they want through that and still feel they had some connection to God. And the Gemara calls this Avodah which doesn't mean idol worship. Idol worship would probably have the word pestle in it or something like that. Pestle's an idol. Avodah Zara is literally avoda, the service of zara, from the Hebrew word zarut, which means disconnection, isolation, aloneness, the opposite of relationship. In Israel, when you want to put up a sign that says no parking for those people who don't work in our building, you say, Ein chanaya lezarim. There is no parking here for strangers. A czar is a strange one. Someone you're not close to. Zarut is disconnection. Avodazar is the worship of disconnection. Instead of going straight to him, I'll relate to something external. Yeah, I'm very close to my wife. Well, just because I work 14 hours a day, you think I'm not close to her? I'm very close. I have a picture of her, of her, of her right here on my table. You see? Look at my wife and I are very close. Look, at I'm holding her picture. You see how close we are? Here, I'll kiss it. You see, I'm very close to my wife. No? A little of Zara that I relate to an external instead of actually relating to the essence of the being. And so the Jews were staring, saying, look, we could always relate to a Kodesh Baruch through this external, and they built their little golden calf. Moshe Rabbeinu comes down from the mountain, and he sees what the Jews are doing. The first question, by the way, is entirely resolved. The Jews were never involved in idol worship. God said, don't worship other gods. They didn't. They never worshipped other gods. They just had a problem with fear of intimacy. They were afraid of real, real closeness. Moshe sees what's going on, runs in and says, this is the antithesis of the purpose of the universe. Picks this thing up and starts to grind it to powder. Puts it into Kool-Aid pitchers, serves everyone to drink a Kool-Aid. Some people's stomachs explode. This is clearly Sota procedure going on here. Sota procedure where they dissolve God's name in water and then give it to the suspected adulteress to drink. I, where was the adultery? Well, now it's becoming fairly clear. There are two stages in the crime of adultery. Stage A and stage B. Once a person, God forbid, commits stage A adultery, they are a walking time bomb. And it is only a matter of moments before they will go over the edge from adultery stage A and commit adultery stage B. What's adultery stage A? Adultery stage A is when, usually because of fear of intimacy, instead of relating to you, I start to relate to your externals. There is nobody like you on the planet. There never has been, there never will be. There's no one with your psychological profile, with your physical profile, with your spiritual profile, with, 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 with your emotional profile. You are totally unique. You as a human being are a trillion times more unique than your fingerprint. If I love you, there is no replacement. There's nothing even close to you. The only people who I know who are similar to other people are people I don't know well. As soon as you get to know them, they're, they're totally unique. No two people are similar. So if, if, if I value your essence, there can never be a replacement. But if what I value about you is something external, 
What a set of ears. Beautifully, unbelievable ears. Well, there's lots of people with ears. Ears are generic. All externals are generic. So once what I value about you is something external, then I've set myself up. That's called adultery stage A. Because of lack of intimacy, I back out and I start relating to something external, something generic. I've set myself up. At that point, it's only a matter of time before, God forbid, adultery stage B happens. Adultery stage B is when I find somebody else who has ears. If all I value in you is something generic, I can go get that someplace else. So I pick myself up and I go find that generic quality some other place. If what you value about a Kodesh Baruch Hu, what you value about God is he can give you money or he give you a husband or he can give you health or whatever it is, that's what you value about him? There's many ways to get that stuff. Once what you value about him is the six-digit salary, you value about him some other external, his sense of humor, his looks. There's lots of places to get that. As soon as what you're looking for is external, it's generic, you can pick it up someplace else, and then it's only a matter of time. Eventually, God forbid, they'll go over the edge to adultery stage B. And you see how the Jews were in fact guilty of adultery. What do the Jews value here? They value the external. Look at it. We can't have a relationship close with God. It's too scary. But we can always get everything we need by pulling cosmic strings and relating to that chariot, something external. So once they had made that decision, that was adultery stage A. That they're relating already to something external. Those people who were guilty of cutting themselves off from a Kodesh Baruch Hu, they were going to just relate to the chariot. If there, were, if there was warning and witnesses, they were put to death for committing adultery with warning and witnesses, and those people were killed by Moshe at the sword. There were some people for whom there was either no warning or no witnesses. Those people couldn't be put to death by Moshe's court. And therefore, those people were subjected to the Sota procedure. What is the Sota procedure? So go back to the original procedure. In the original procedure, we take God's name, write it on a piece of parchment, dissolve it in water, and give it to a woman to drink. Why God's name? So you all realize that in Hebrew, the word describes the essence of the thing. That's the medrash that God brought the animals to Adam and said, what is this? And, and Adam said, well, huge floppy ears, long nose, big legs. That's a pill. That's an elephant. It's got to be. Why? Because you take the intrinsic meaning of a pei, you combine it with the intrinsic meaning of a yud, you modify that pair by the intrinsic meaning of a lamed, and you get a thing with big ears, long nose, and big legs. Every Hebrew letter has some intrinsic meaning. If you truly understood what an object was, you could name every single object that you see. You really should never need a Hebrew English dictionary. You just have to know what all the letters mean, and you have to understand the essence of the object. As soon as you understand the essence of an object, you can articulate its name. Now, with one quart of oatmeal in my cranial vault, can I comprehend the almighty, omniscient, right, infinite one, God? Not today. Given that's the case, since I cannot comprehend who God is, that means I can never name him. Which means God has no name. Because if he could have a name, then I could understand the name, I could understand God. So God has no name. So if God has no names, what are all the names of God? So what are the names of God? The names of God are descriptions of his behavior. When God acts kind, that's the tetragrammaton yud k vav k. When God acts just, that's Elohim. God who's responsible for sustaining nature, that's Kel Shakai. Each one of God's names describes some behavior that he has. That is, each one of God's names describes an external. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, I have a friend. Could you tell me about her personality? Oh, I, I didn't give you any hints. Okay, let me give you a hint. She's a lawyer. Okay, now tell me about her essence. 
I mean, all I've told you is what she does, so you can't tell me about her essence yet. Okay, um, she's a lawyer and she drives a white Trans Am. Now tell me about her. Like, who is she really? Her dreams, her fears, her thoughts, or like what the essence of who this lady is. What do you mean these are all externals? Yeah? She's wearing a pink dress. You realize all these things are only what she does. And if you're only describing externals, you know nothing about the essence of the being. So God's names, they describe externals. They tell you what he does, not who he is. And therefore, the Kohen, the priest, looks at this lady who is accused of committing adultery. And he says to her, oh, you must like externals. You like externals? Here. And he dissolves God's name in water and hands it to her and says, here, have a drink. You like externals? Here's some externals for you. And he dissolves God's external, so to speak, God's name in water and says, here, drink. Watch, involvement with externals kills. What do we mean involvement with externals kills? If I'm going to relate to you, I'm relating to your essence, not to your externals. Then I have a relationship. Then I'm alive. But as soon as what I'm relating to is some external with you, I'm not relating to you at all. At that point, we don't have a relationship anymore. At that point, I'm cut off. I'm alone. I'm immersed in zarut, in isolation. That's called by Jewish standards, death. And life is being in love, being connected. So the Kohen says, you like externals? Here, drink. Your spirit's already dead. Just let your body catch up. And she drinks, and if she's guilty, her stomach explodes. She dies on the spot. It's interesting, the part of her that explodes is that part of her which is involved in relationship. So we understand the Jews were not involved in idol worship. They were involved in something else, a vodazara, a disconnection. And we understand where was the adultery? There was adultery. The Jews, instead of relating to God's essence, were relating to an external. We also understand now who the people who were who were killed by the sword. Those were the people where there was witnesses and warning. And who were the people who were killed by the sword? Where there was what? Not witnesses or not warning. But why did God say, now Moshe, stand back at him and kill the rest of the Jewish people? So it's fairly clear. Although only a few of, uh, a small percentage of the Jewish people had actually committed adultery stage A. But the entire Jewish people was guilty of adultery stage B. But the entire Jewish people was guilty of adultery stage A. They were all staring at the chariot. Remember the beginning scene? They were all looking. Thinking, listen, if we can't relate so close, maybe we can always relate at a distance. And once you commit adultery stage A, it's only a matter of time before you go to adultery stage B. And Moshe begged, please, please don't wipe out the Jews. And God said, what can I do? They're going to defeat the entire purpose of the universe. They were only relating to my externals. God said, there's one solution. Come back up to the mountain. I'll give you the Ten Commandments again. But shh. This time. No thunder. No shaking mountain. No fire. There's nothing as beautiful as Sneas. Where was the violation of Sneas? I thought Sneas meant modesty. Well, both at the metaphorical level, at the physical level, you see there was a violation of modesty. God came down flashing, so to speak. He was showing off the Merkava. In the metaphor, Kavayachal, it's like skin. And the Jews were staring. The Medrash says, what was the source of the loud noises at Mount Sinai? What was the thunder, the lightning, the shaking mountain? Where was all that coming from? The Medrash says it was coming from the chariot, the Merkava. Because the nature of externals is they are blinding, they are fire, they are thunder, they are shaking mountain. That's what externals are all about. And if that's the case... If the Jews got into trouble because they were staring at Hashem, who was flashing externals when he came down, then whose fault was the golden calf? God. But they can't be. God couldn't have made a mistake. And he didn't. See, unlike most religions on the planet, 
We don't think there's anything wrong with externals. We think externals are terrific. It's just that we're sober enough to understand that they're blinding. And if they're brought out in a relationship before a deep internal commitment has been made, it will be almost impossible for me to get past the blinding externals and actually make a deeper commitment to relate to the person's essence. I can't see their essence once these blinding externals come out. And therefore God says, don't bring out the externals until there is full commitment. In the world of the Torah, that full commitment is called marriage. And God made no mistake. The Medrash says that God stretched the heavens over Harsinai like a chuppah. It was the wedding night. And on the wedding night, the commitment's been made. And then it's not inappropriate for there to be externals. What's so frightening here is, on the wedding night, the Jews were staring at the externals. What's so frightening is there's a potential in every single human being that even in such a framework where there's supposedly total commitment, we could still be valuing someone only for their externals. That was the sin of the golden calf. That was their mistake. And so God said they can't handle it. So come back up to the mountain if you want. But this time, no thunder, no lightning, no smoking mountain. Drop a blanket over it. Then perhaps they'll be able to focus on my essence. There's nothing as beautiful as sneas. Let's try to make this very concrete and practical. It's normal for people to be afraid of closeness. And when they're afraid of closeness, what they tend to do is they tend to flash externals or focus on others' externals. Like what? I know a woman who is, without understanding the case, brilliant. From the time she was already in high school, even before that, she had a photographic memory. She could look at a book a few moments, memorize the page, and read it back to you. And she confessed to me she had a terrible time in high school making friends because everyone related to her as the brain. She was like a toy to play with at a party. And she was, she was a brilliant one. And everyone only saw the flash of her IQ. So they missed her feelings, her dreams, her fears, her thoughts. All of that wasn't there. The only thing that existed was this massively muscular IQ. Comes the Torah and says, if you have an IQ of 220, fake 180. And the Torah never asked that a person should look ugly. The Torah doesn't say fake 70. A Jew is supposed to be beautiful. Not sexy. Beautiful. 180 is beautiful. 220 is blinding. When a person has that kind of an IQ, you, no one will be able to penetrate and get past. So you have to keep a blanket on it. Brains are an example of such a thing. I'll give you another example. I have a close friend who is the funniest man I've ever met. He's also a terrific guy, but almost nobody knows him. All the people who know him, who think they know him, know him as the comic. He's such a funny person. As you're rolling the eyes, you meet him within... 15 seconds, you're already laughing. Sense of humor is external. And if you have a sense of humor that makes people roll in the aisles, put it under a blanket. Not that you shouldn't be funny, but just bring it down to a level where it's not so blind that people can't get to who you are. A 
The common external that especially is flashed by men is professional prestige, power, money. There was a woman who came here to Neve. She was here for a year. A wonderful, wonderful lady, a spectacular woman. I, 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 mean, I have tremendous admiration for this lady. After a year here, she met a guy and she dated him for several months and she came to me after a few months and said, you know, I think I met my husband. I said, really, who is he? She told me who he was. So I just filed the information and then behind her back, I didn't tell her, behind her back I went to the guy. And I said to him, please don't tell his parents are literally billionaires. He never has to work ever in his life. There's so much money in the family. His children will never have to work. His grandchildren will never have to work. There was so much money in this family. I said to him, shh, please don't tell. Not because I thought that she would marry him for the money. I knew she wouldn't marry him for the money. The opposite. She is such a fine person. I knew she would distrust her sensitivities. She would feel that maybe she's marrying him for the money. And she would break off the shidduch. She wouldn't marry him. Because she'd be afraid. Who knows what my motivation is? So I said, please drop a blank and don't blind her yet. And I know that at the engagement, she had no idea what was going on. Because she told me that she was like a little surprised. Her mother-in-law showed up wearing this rock on her hand. And that like, you know, that gave away that there was something going on. Yeah. But she told me she still didn't really know. Yeah. I assume after they got married, he probably told her what was going on. But, uh, but, but until then, he let her make the commitment seeing who he was. Not blinded by some external. So there's two halves to making a relationship. On the one side, we want to make a relationship with others. We want to connect to them. We have to make sure to keep our externals under a blanket until... There's been an opportunity to make deep commitment. And of course, depending on the preciousness of the external, there has to be varying levels of commitment before you bring it out. For a sense of humor, it might require less commitment than for other things. But there has to be a certain amount of commitment for each type of external. What about when somebody else is flashing? I'm trying to connect to them, but they're flashing. So... I raised this question accidentally with a great Talmud Hachim, great Torah scholar here in Jerusalem. I believed that my son and I, my son was probably about 10 years old at the time, I believed that my son and I were going to have to go down to a lot in the middle of the summer. And I've never been to a lot, but I've heard rumors that in a lot during the summer they don't wear long winter coats, yes? <laughs> So I was concerned, and I was really trying to get out of making the trip, but it looked like I was going to have to go. And so I went to my, my Rebbe, and I asked him, what do I do? So he said, what do you mean? So I said, you know, a lot during the summer. She said, what's the problem? So I realized he had also never been to a lot, yes? <laughs> so I started to explain. He said, I know, I know, but what's the problem? I said, what do you mean? He said, it's an explicit Gemara. She said, oh, of course. I didn't want to admit that I didn't know all the Gemara Balpeh. Yes. I said, of course. Which Gemara? He said, the Gemara there where it talks about what, what sort of infections, what kind of wounds you're allowed to treat on Shabbat. I said, oh, yeah. What does it say there? He says, it says that if there's a deep internal wound, something wrong deep inside the body, those things we treat on Shabbos. But external superficial wounds, those we don't treat on Shabbos. So I said, oh, yeah, yeah. What, what does it say about a lot? He says there, the very next line, the very next line says, what about if there's a wound to the eye? If the eye is wounded, is that called internal or external? It's a fascinating question. So the Gemara continues and says, the eye... Shirani de'ena beli betalia. 
the fibers that go out the back of the eye, they connect into the heart. That is, the eye is that part of the heart that sticks out of the body. So that means the eye is an internal organ. It's part of the heart. So you can treat it on Shabbos if there's a problem with the eye. So he said, oh, great. What does it say about a lot? And he explained, don't you see, if the eye is that part of the body, the, the part of the, that part of the heart that sticks out of the body, so then, if your heart is engaged, then your eye can't see. If your heart is relating at a deep level, then your eye will not see things that are superficial, that are up on the street. You've probably all had this experience. I've had the experience when I'm deeply thinking about something. You know, I'm driving down the freeway and I'm thinking about something. And I realize that four stops ago was my off-ramp, yes? Mm-hmm. I've had the experience before of walking down the street and almost walking into a pole, yes? <laughs> I'm engaged. I'm thinking. I, my eyes don't see. My Rebbe said, before you go down to a lot, you and your son should prepare some of your deepest, right, most pleasant gabaras, the ones that you love the most. And as you're walking around in a lot, the two of you should speak about gemara. And because you'll be experiencing this intimacy with your son, you'll be connecting, your heart is engaged at a deep level. So your eye won't see. That is... If you want to connect at a deep level, what you do is use this technique of pressing the button and going down in the elevator. You come down off the street. And when you're relating deeply, you can't see the superficial things that are up there on the street. I was once invited to a party. And it was a party of very wealthy, very famous people. And they were all basically trying to impress with their externals. And a guy walks up to me at the party, a physician, and he says to me, Hello, my name is so-and-so. I'm the head of this department, this famous hospital. He's flashing. I felt like saying, Hello, Lab Kellerman, size 34 underwear. Nice to meet you. <laughs> yes, I didn't say that, but, you know, he's flashing. Yes. So I used this technique. I, I, I went down the elevator. I pressed the button. I came down. I said, Oh, he was the head of a pediatrics department. I said, Pediatrics, why did you go into pediatrics? So here's the bad news. Sometimes you try to get down the elevator and you try to actually connect at a deeper level. If the person is flashing because they're afraid of intimacy, they will run away. The guy said to me, I'll be right back. I'm just going to get a drink. He went to the bar. I watched him go to the bar. When I wasn't looking, he thought he then took off for the door and left. Guy didn't want to connect. That's why he's flashing. Very often, the biggest flashers are the people who are the most afraid of intimacy. And they're hoping that you'll keep watching the external show so you won't actually connect to them. That's why they do it. They're afraid if you see who they are, you won't, you won't like them. So just keep watching the bouncing ball. Look at the flashing show. And you'll keep giving approval to their, their money, their Mont Blanc pen, their Rolex watch, a little bit of elbow, whatever they flash. And you'll see all these things and you'll be impressed with that. You'll never actually see what, who they are because they're afraid if you see that, you won't like them anymore. When I, when I was a little boy, I was probably five years old, I was out playing in the neighborhood, and there was a whole bunch of other boys who were playing. They were really big. They were, I don't know, they probably were 10. Yeah, and they were, they were playing hide-and-go-seek. So I went out to play with them, and like, they were playing hide-and-go-seek, and I was running around with them, and I really felt like I was playing with them. But I wasn't really. They were just letting me think that. And then after a while, they got tired of having me around, so they said, okay, now you hide. So I went and hid and they left. I'm still traumatized. <laughs> Sometimes this is what happens when you go down the elevator. Sometimes you go down the elevator and the other person will remain up on the surface because they don't want to connect. But you know what? You've lost nothing. Because you didn't have a relationship with them anyways. You had no connection. As long as you're up on the street, flashing at each other, there's nothing happening. So you might as well go down the elevator and see if you can connect at a deeper level. Then at least there's a chance, there's a possibility. And if they leave, okay, they leave. You lost nothing. So in short, we've learned one very, very small technique for creating thriving relationships. That technique is that while we're always supposed to be beautiful, 
We should use our sense of humor. We should use our intelligence. We should use our money. All of this is valuable. It's all beautiful according to the Torah. However, the extent to which we allow these things to flash, the extent to which we show everything we've got depends on the level of commitment that we've gotten from our significant other. And until we've achieved levels of commitment from others, then we don't flash too much. You could always look beautiful, but not sexy. Don't flash too much, because you'll blind the other, and they won't be able to see. Then it becomes a vodazara. It's the process of disconnecting from others. And we've learned that if other people are flashing, you get in the elevator and you go, to, go down and try to relate to them at a deeper level. That doesn't mean you have to pry. You don't have to go deep into people's lives, but just look at them as a human being. Every person you meet, they're a brother, a sister, a father, a son. They're a person with dreams, with hopes. Relate to them as that. You get on a bus here in Yerushalayim. You shouldn't get on the bus and say to the bus driver, why did you become a bus driver? <laughs> Don't do that. But when you hand your ticket over to the bus driver, you're not handing it to a ticket-punching machine. You're handing it to a real live human being, someone's son, someone's brother. When you say thank you, you're saying thank you to a real human being. Thank you very much for punching my ticket. To view every person in a deep way, not in a superficial way, not in what they do, but who they are. That's the way to view people. If we do that, perhaps we'll have more success in achieving the sorts of relationships that God would like us to achieve. Thank you for listening to ClassicSinai.com. We hope that you have enjoyed this class. For other free classes, just return to ClassicSinai.com. If you feel that your friends and family would appreciate this class, click on our easy Send to a Friend link. Shalom from the Western Wall.